Oh Lord God Almighty, you have spoken. You have said without faith, no one can please you. But we cannot have faith unless you work in us and draw us to yourself. So Lord, we are going to open up your word. And there's no other book like the Bible. And just now we heard of men and women in ages past, they believed you. They persevered despite all kinds of trials and sufferings and difficulties. So Lord, we pray that you may give us faith, strengthen our faith and increase our faith. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of your word. Grant that we may understand and perceive the way of the Bible, the way of your revealing yourself to us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now let us turn back to Exodus chapter 1. And let me read to you a few verses. First of all, verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. And down to verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shortly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Well, here the king of Egypt was afraid that the people of Israel may go out of his land. And this is precisely what happened in the book of Exodus. Well, with fear and trepidation, I do hope to begin to study the book of Exodus together with you in the evening services. Exodus. What does this word mean? It means getting out, literally, or departure. It's actually a Greek word. Uh, the name Exodus comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. This book is about how the people of Israel get out of Egypt. And that event happened uh, in the year 1446 BC. That's a long while ago, isn't it? Uh, 3,500 years ago. I say I approach this book of Exodus with fear and trepidation uh, because there's so much in this book. It's not that we are going to have not enough things to say, but there's so many things here. 
it is said there are more commentaries on Exodus than any other books in the Bible. I have no way to check this out, maybe some of you can, uh, but I did look at my bookshelf from time to time and I say, why do I have so many commentaries on Exodus? I'm not going to be able to use them in my lifetime. I cannot read them all, but why do I have so many? Maybe not as many as I have commentaries on Romans, but quite close. And I got a simple answer, not because I planned to preach through uh, Exodus a long time ago. It's just because there are commentaries on Exodus. Whereas I would be hard put to find a commentary on, uh, let's say, Jeremiah or Ezekiel. There are simply so many commentaries on Exodus. The rest of the Old Testament frequently looks back to Exodus. What happened in Exodus is the paradigm for the future relationship between the nation Israel and their covenant God. Jews, Christians, liberation theologians, Marxists, socialists, they are all interested in this book for their various reasons. And this is a very important book in the Bible. So tonight, we shall introduce this book and try to uh, cover a chapter or half in the beginning of Exodus. What is this book, Exodus? What is it about? Well, first of all, Exodus is a storybook. By saying this is a storybook, it does not mean that it is not true. I could say this is a history book, but if you heard me say this is a history book, you are all going to yawn and say, oh, this is boring, history, date, event, names. Well, it is a history book. It is a story book. It's a story about God saving and redeeming his people, about God being true to his promise. You know, someone has nicely put in this way, uh, just as a bit of illustration, uh, it says, history is his story. I don't think this is a, the dictionary meaning of history, but it's true, isn't it? Uh, history is God's story. But, but usually, we don't have God's exposition or explanation about history. Uh, we may like to uh, theologize about why should earthquake happen in, uh, in Turkey and Syria. It's a dangerous business. Uh, we better not jump to the conclusion. I heard a very famous evangelist in Asia, well with reputable minister who preached to millions of people at the beginning of COVID. Uh, he said rather unguardedly, 
condemning China, saying that you imprisoned uh, Pastor Wang Yi, and now you got COVID. Well, uh, that that was a silly statement. Unfortunate. But here we have historical event and God's interpretation of this event. It's very interesting to notice the Hebrew name of the book of Exodus. Some of you know this. Uh, remember, the name for the book of Exodus in the Hebrew Bible is what? Names. Say so what? Names. Can you have a more boring name for the name of a Bible book? But Exodus actually begins in this way in, in the Hebrew language. It says, and these names. And these names. Why should anyone begin a book, a long book, by first of all saying, and these Names or these are the names. Well, because Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. You know, uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible and it does follow the first book, Genesis. Are you familiar with the book of Genesis? If not, go home with it. It's easy reading, uh, it won't take you long. But then you may, you may be scratching your head and say, well, what is God up to in these things? The book of Exodus begins with God's creation. Then humanity's rebellion against God and judgment coming upon the world. Death came along, sin came along, and then the global flood. And then all of a sudden, the book of Exodus narrows down to one man, Abraham living in ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. You know, Mesopotamia is uh, the cradle of human civilization. That's why Iraqi people are very proud of themselves. We have a long civilization. What are you Americans? <laughs> you only got a few hundred years of history. We got 4,000 years plus. And God called one man Abraham 4,000 years ago and God promised him, I'm going to bless the whole world through your seed, your descendants. That sounds interesting, isn't it? One man and God said, I'm going to bless the whole world through your seed, your descendants. And then Abraham waited for so many years in order to have that seed. He was about 75 when God called him and he got his promised seed at the age of 100. It's a long time in waiting, isn't it? Suppose a young couple should marry at the age of 25 and they should wait until 50 before they have their first child. That would be long waiting enough. But God called Abraham at the age of 75 and God gave him the seed at the age of 100. What's God up to? And then Isaac, his son, got two sons, but God only called one of them Jacob. And then Jacob got 12 sons. And if you read Genesis, you only say, boy, 
if I have those sons of Jacob, I better kill myself perhaps. It was terrible children. One or two accepted, accepting Joseph and perhaps Benjamin. And then these 12 sons and Jacob, they went down to Egypt. The wife and his God promised that Abraham and his descendants would possess the land of Canaan. God promised him, but God led Jacob and his family to go down to Egypt. And then they stayed in Egypt for a long while. When Jacob was going down to Egypt, he was rather hesitant. Yes, his son Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt, but he didn't want to leave the promised land, but God told him, you go. And now, as we open up the book of Exodus, God is going to bring his people out of Egypt. But to get them out of Egypt, the Lord God needed to get Egypt out of their hearts first. Otherwise, they won't be willing to leave Egypt. If life in Egypt was nice and easy and rich and prosperous, they would never want, or they would never want to leave Egypt. Just as unless we feel the bitterness of sin, we won't take Jesus to be our Savior. We told people, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall, be, you shall be saved. And people say to us, save from what? They say, save from sin, from condemnation. What sin are you talking about? What condemnation are you talking about? We need to be convinced and convicted and feel the bitterness of the bondage of sin before we are going to take Jesus as our Savior. So this book, Exodus, is a storybook about God bringing his own people out of the land of Egypt. It's also a picture book. Well, if I may give you this outline of Exodus in just three words. This book, the structure of Exodus, is about bondage, deliverance, and service. Exodus is a picture book about being delivered from slavery to service. Remember these three words and you got Exodus under your belt. From bondage to service. Bondage, deliverance and service. And of course, now friends, I advise you when you go home, whether you've read Exodus before or not, start to read it. The first 20 chapters are going to be easy reading. And then when you hit about the building of the tabernacle, it's going to be hard, unless you love architecture. But when we read this book of Exodus, Exodus it is so interesting. It's a picture book. Now we can teach uh, a five-year-old child, a four-year-old child, the stories in Exodus. It's, it's all very exciting pictures. We have the people being beaten up as slaves in Egypt. 
We have the Passover lamb, the angel of death, going out to kill the firstborn male in Egypt, and then the household of uh, Israel were saved. We have the ten plagues before that. Water turned into blood, flies everywhere, frogs, boils, locusts, hells, darkness, killing of the firstborn, as we mentioned just now. What a picture. Well, maybe we can encourage the children to draw pictures of the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea. Men are coming from heaven, water from the rock, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and then the glory of the Lord resting on the tabernacle. The children love the book of Exodus. There are many pictures here. They can remember them well. Uh, those of you who have children, uh, people who are involved in teaching children Sunday school, well, Exodus, a picture book. And of course, one of the major figures in Exodus is Moses. And what a picture we have of Moses being the deliverer, the saviour, the mediator between God and the people of Israel, uh, the one who prayed to God to save Israel, the lawgiver, Moses with the two stone tablets. And these are pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus being the saviour, like Moses, but quicker than Moses, our Lord Jesus was the mediator between God and sinful humanity. Christ our Lord is still praying for his people in heaven above as an intercessor. And Jesus writes God's law on our hearts. So Exodus is also a picture book, not just a story book. And also this is a book of lessons. We learn many lessons about God. We come to know God as we read Exodus. When God makes himself known, he makes himself known in historical events, not in theological textbooks. From this book we learn about God's enemies, what they are like, about sin, and from this book, we learn about Christian service. Maybe usually we, we miss this. We can learn so much about serving God, being gospel uh, ministers, missionary, servant. Uh, how does it like to serve God? What do we do when we get this courage? How would people treat us? This book teaches us about unbelief, about grumbling. Many other lessons uh, other than these. Now we must try to get our feet wet. We shall look at the first chapter and half of the book of Exodus. As we open up the book of Exodus, well, first of all, we are told these names. The, the 12 sons of Jacob. Can, can you name the names of Jacob, uh, the sons of Jacob, without mistakes? Uh, 
Well, we, we did that in, in, in church, in new fellowship. When we grew up, well, what, what are the 12 sons of Jacob? Yeah. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and so on. We got the names. And then things got a bit tense. In verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph saved Egypt in the famine. When his father and his brothers went down to Egypt, they were welcomed as honored guests. Not as mere refugees, but as the family of our Prime Minister who saved our country. But then, by and by, a new generation of people arose, and then the king of Egypt got nervous about the people of Israel. We sense God has a sense of humor, isn't it? Abraham found it so hard to have the promised seed. Isaac tried hard and he got two sons. When he came to Jacob, he got twelve sons plus daughters, at least one daughter. But when we come later on to the history of the people of Israel, they just multiply like crazy. Strange, isn't it? Uh, they just multiply and multiply and the king of uh, Egypt we call him Pharaoh and he said look this is getting dangerous they multiply so greatly and what happened if they should turn against us so that started with some way so tension isn't it Australia is the land of migration I, I look around uh, well Maybe uh, accepting one or two, perhaps, uh, we, or, or two or three, uh, we, we are migrants, or children of migrants. And we know we have the whole world coming to, to Australia, but there's a delicate balance, isn't it? You don't want any uh, ethnic group of people grow too rapidly or doing too well. Otherwise, people got jealous of you and people call you names and people uh, may attack your homes. So far, so good in Australia, but we cannot take it for granted. Any ethnic group as migrant growing too fast and too weak too quickly will get themselves into trouble. They're not doing blame, but that is human nature, simple nature. So Pharaoh said, let's deal with that. So it makes the people of Israel work hard as uh, laborers, working at building sites, building cities. But the trouble is that the more the Egyptians afflicted the people of Israel, the more they grew and multiplied. So the Egyptian rulers make them serve harder. You have to work hard at building sites. You have to work hard in the field. But still they multiply. 
Eventually, by and by, they became slaves. Their lives got very difficult. But still they were growing. And then Pharaoh, one of them decided, now we, we really have to curtail their population growth. And he decided the best way is to kill all the male babies. Genocide. My knowledge of ancient history is not good enough to, to say whether this is the first genocide in human history. I don't know. But this is a major one. Let's kill all the male babies, all the midwives. Well, when you give birth to the children of Israel, if you saw a boy, kill the boy. That didn't work. That was too tedious, too difficult. So later on, the king of Egypt decided, well, you people of Israel, when you give birth to boys, drown them in the Nile. Make it easy. And the whole situation was getting very dangerous and critical. What if all the boys got killed? There'll be no children of Israel anymore. The girls will be married off the Egyptian, and their whole group will disappear. Then how could God fulfill his promises? Things got really too dangerous and too critical. Friends, have we not seen something like this concerning our time? We raise up our hand in despair, so to say. How much worse this world will become, especially in the so-called Christian West, and the so-called Christian West is spreading all this garbage or poison, as I say, not just garbage, but poison over the world. Now they are talking about transhumanism or transhumans. They are talking about post-humans, after humans. We are going to make new human beings as we've never known before. And they are talking about homo deus, or deus, man-god. Man-god. We are going to produce godlings in the future. We are going to change human nature completely. And if we have any concern for the future generation, we should be deeply, deeply disturbed and upset. The weapon fight now has been in the New South Wales Parliament in the Upper House for something like 40 years. It started off uh, trying to 
promote Christian morality. But over that long period of time, what have we seen? What have we seen? It's alarming, isn't it? How much worse will this be? And friends, from the book of Exodus, we learn the Lord is always in the driver's seat. Things will never get out of God's ultimate control. God will always bring out the best out of the worst. You just consider the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was crucified, that seems to be the worst moment in the world. Darkness triumph, evil triumph. But what happened? God brought about the salvation of countless millions through the death of his own son. When God looked like being defeated, he transferred. But some of you may remember in 2014, 276 girls, most of them Christian girls, from a Christian institution was captured by Booker Haram in Nigeria. And to this date, still some 100 are in captivity. But some 167 have been released. Two of them have actually completed master's degree in the US. But still, it's dreadful, isn't it? And not just those girls, but Christian girls. In some Islamic places, they were captured. And they were forced into all kinds of things which we do not even like to mention in public. God allowed that with a purpose. Even though we may not know the purposes of God for some time. Now before we go home, let us learn a few lessons from this uh, chapter and a half. What lesson can we learn? First of all, we can learn that God can use very small people. Now notice in chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2 are these four humble women. Well, how was God going to save his people, Israel? Not by raising up another Joseph. We can't ask God to repeat what he has done before. We want to do that, isn't it? Well, Lord, you have done this before. Please do it again in the same way. But sometimes, quite often, God says, no, I've got other, other ways to do things. So God did not raise up another Joseph, not immediately, but God raised up two midwives. Chapter 1 in verse 17. These two midwives fear God. And they just won't do what the king of Egypt commanded them. They saved the male babies alive. These two women very ordinary women, very insignificant women, 
They were threatened with death if they did not kill the male babies, but because they fear God, they won't come to life. What challenge? It will be human nature for the midwife not to be willing to kill those babies. But then, when the choice is either between, is between you, your life, and the life of a newborn child, how would you choose? Down for history, many people chose to do evil. Then they sacrificed their lives in not doing that. But these two humble ladies, they fear God, they won't comply. And they persuaded the plan of Pharaoh. And now we come to chapter 2. Look at verse 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took literally a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. Do we not smile at such homely literary charm, so simple, and a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi, so the woman conceived, so homely, so ordinary, and she bore a son, and God is going to introduce Moses. And Moses' mother saw that Moses was a beautiful child, an unusual child, and she hid him for three months. And when she could no longer hide Moses, she made a little waterproof basket and placed baby Moses into that waterproof basket and then asked elder sister to put the basket on the, in the Nile, in the river Nile, and see what would happen. What faith Moses' parents have. The book of Hebrews tells us, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Faith? We dare to disobey Pharaoh at the risk of our own lives? My dear friends, even, even for a mother, when her life, her own life is threatened, she may even kill her own child. It's not, it's not this the reason why we have so many abortions over the world. Because girls and women are saying, that we got this inconvenient pregnancy. We were not planning for this. Maybe we did something silly, alright, unexpected. But for our own sake, we'll get rid of the child. It must take a woman some uneasy conscience to do that. But we are selfish. 
were quite capable to do that. But Moses' mother, she had faith and father as well. And they said, no, we are going to keep our child. And then they got this well-planned uh, scheme to save Moses. Let's make a waterproof basket. Let's put him in the Nile. Let's place him where the royal princesses will come out and have uh, their swim. No doubt, they pray over this plan of rescue. No doubt, they were expecting deliverance. But who was Moses' mother? A mother, yes. Do you know her name? How about after church? We do a quick quiz. See how many of us actually know the name of Moses' mother? I'm not tricking you, we do know her name. Uh, but maybe you don't know her name. After double check. Uh, who was Moses' mother? A mother? Who was her sister? A humble girl. They were very small and insignificant people. But without Moses' mother and sister, the deliverance under Moses' hand would not happen. My dear friends, you may say to yourself, I am such a small, insignificant person. I'm a very humble Christian. I can't do much. What can I do? What can I accomplish? I can't, I can't talk. I'm not smart. I don't have much education. Well, you do what God has asked you to do. And do it faithfully. You will not know. That's for a long while. What God will accomplish through you. Remember, Augustine's mother, Monica, she had a very smart son, Augustine, but Augustine turned to unbelief, a immoral lifestyle, and mother was grieved, and she just cried and prayed and prayed and wept and wept and cried. You say, what's so special about that? Nothing. Actually, when we read about Monica, she was a, a bit of a superstitious type of Christian. Not very well taught or well informed. She was just a Christian mother, mourning and praying, weeping for her unbelieving son. And what happened? Well, her son change the world. But without Monica, there will be no Augustine. If Monica is to say, well, this is hopeless. There's no point to pray. I can argue with my son. <laughs> He's smart. What's the point? So let just get along. Let him get along with life. It's a good life. Let me be happy. No. So the first lesson we learn tonight is God can use where we small, insignificant people like us. Second lesson.
God often seems to delay His acting. Now in chapter 2, we read that Moses was born. And you know the story, don't you? Moses is going to save the people of Israel out of the land of bondage, out of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, and so on. This is going to be exciting. But you remember, this would happen 80 years later. You say, what? From the birth of Moses to the actual departure from Egypt were another 80 years. That's too long, isn't it? 80 more years of bondage, 80 more years of suffering. Actually, some 500 years before Moses, God told Abraham in Genesis 15, Now Abraham, you must understand and know that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve the people there, and God afflicted for 400 years. And the fourth generation, they shall return to the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You know, for the people of Israel to occupy the promised land, eventually the inhabitants of Canaan had to be exterminated. And that was a terrible, terrible judgment. People are still asking about why should that happen? We do know the people in Canaan, they were very violent and immoral and depraved people. And God had in mind to judge them and destroy them. But in God's patience, He would wait for another 400 years to allow his people to suffer for a long while. We do read in history when a civilization, when a culture became too depraved, eventually they would go for self-destruction. What a lesson here for us. From the 18th century enlightenment, they call it enlightenment. I like to call it endarkment. At first, those people whom we call deists, oh, they believe in a creator God, but this God is far out and has no concern with this well, only natural law. It started with that. In France, in other places, America, Britain, and then from then on, the Western culture and civilization got more and more rebellious against God. Up until now, what have we become now in the West? We have become literally noble, savage. We are so noble, so advanced in technology, but we are so corrupt in morality, and we are set on a path of self-destruction. You see, my dear friends, in the 60s, 
There was a cultural revolution in China, communist China. And in those days, uh, you got name and shame. You go, you got denounced. If you got money, you got denounced. If you got education, you got denounced. If people didn't like you, they would say you are anti-Chairman now. You got denounced. And people were chanting slogan. You realize we have a new cultural revolution in our midst, in the Western world. There's a red line, and the red line is coming closer and closer to our hearts. And is there anything wrong? By the standard of immorality of the Western culture, you got name and shame, you got denounced, you got nowhere to go. Dare we say something? The banks may stop allowing us to keep any accounts with them. You think that is unthinkable? Not so unthinkable, my dear friends. And we ask the Lord, Lord, how come it's like this? How much longer will this be? And then we see the Lord seeming to be very tardy and slow in coming to revive the church or judge the world. We say, why Lord? You see, my dear friends, the martyrs in heaven are still crying. Revelation chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. The martyrs cry in heaven, Lord, how long? How long, holy and judge? O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. The answer to them, you rest a little while long. Until both the number of their fellow servants and your brethren who will be killed as they were was completed. What an answer. The martyrs cry out to the Lord, how long before you will judge? And the Lord said, well, there's still a fixed number of my people who will be martyred, will be killed before the final judgment should come. People mock questions. They say, where's your Jesus? He's gone for the past 2,000 years. He's promised to come back. Where is Jesus? You know the answer? God is bearing where we patiently with his well. Even with our Western civilization, he let us go on like this. He let us uh, still be prosperous and strong and, and well fed. He's patient. We learn the second lesson. The Lord often seems to delay the coming of His judgment and salvation. The third lesson, with that, I shall finish tonight's sermon. We notice the Lord can even use His enemies to accomplish His will. God has in mind to raise up Moses to be the leader of Israel, the saviour of Israel, and God saw fit to give him the best education in the world, the best friend. 
And what happened? Well, as Moses' mother and father and uh, older sister expected, yes, a royal princess came to have a bath, maybe a swim or maybe a religious, with religious purpose, we don't know. But she discovered this little basket. She sent uh, her maid servant to get it, and when she opened the basket, she saw baby Moses. It's so beautiful. Behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion on him. She said, this is one of the Hebrew children. It just so happened that she would discover this box. It so happened that at that moment when she opened up the box, baby Moses would cry. It so happened that God would move the heart of this lady, royal princess, and she had compassion on Moses. Not coincidence, isn't it? God was doing something. And then came elder sister of Moses, she plugged up the, her pelvis, she ran up to the royal princess, and she said, well, should I get a wet nurse for you? What courage? What courage? And the royal princess told her, go and get me such a nurse, and I'll pay her nursing his child for me. Wow! Miriam ran home and told mother, Mother, Moses is alright. I actually gave you a job to nurse for baby Moses. Actually, that was not the baby's original name. The royal princess gave him that name. So Moses' mother was paid for nursing her own child. And she was paid a handsome wages for her work of love. You know there are some professional nannies in the UK. They got paid more than professional doctors and lawyers. How about your mothers here? What if you should be paid $200,000 a year for looking after your own child? That will be a good job, isn't it? You give back your child, you nurse the child, you take care of the child, $200,000, tax-free. With something like that for Moses' mother. And Moses was given the best education in the world in those days, reading, writing, mathematics, law, government, accounting, military, operations, skills, architecture, engineering, science, astronomy, the most advanced technology, the Egyptians, they built a pyramid. They knew a lot about mathematics, building, engineering, architecture, and Moses was given all this education free. And all this skill will become useful for his life calling. 
as the deliverer of Israel, leading them in a howling wilderness. God even uses his enemies to accomplish his holy purpose. How true it is that God moved in a mysterious way. So friends, as we pray, as we endeavor to serve the Lord, let us learn to wait for God's time, to trust Him for His faithfulness and mercy. The Lord is patient with us. The Lord is patient with the world. The end of the world is not yet, at least it's not yet tonight, at this time. And let us trust God that He will yet accomplish a great salvation all over the world. Let's pray. Eternal and ever blessed God, you are sovereign over all. From your creation, we can see the wonders of your world. From the singing of the birds, the swimming of the fish, the movement of the stars, the waves of the ocean. flowers we see, we see your plan, your wisdom, your power, and from the pages of your word, we read about the history of your salvation, how in ancient time you saved the people to yourself, against the wheels and plan of the most powerful monarch in the world in those days. You did it. By your own way, help us to learn to trust in you and fear not. Help us to labor on, to wait upon you. We do pray for the world especially this part of the world, these so-called Western nations, which have gone mad. Oh God, we pray that you may intervene and work your wonders of grace, that the people yet unborn may be raised up to praise your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.